You're listening to the Scaling Culture Podcast, where we sit down with thought leaders who share their experiences building incredible workplace cultures. Our guest today is Kevin Oakes, author of Culture Renovation and CEO and founder of the Institute for Corporate Productivity, or I4CP. Kevin is a frequent author and international keynote speaker on next practices in human capital and works with business and HR executives on people practices that drive high performance. Kevin led numerous companies. For example, he was founder and president of SumTotal Systems. And before that, chairman and CEO of Click2Learn, a company that was founded in 1985 by Paul Allen, the co-founder of Microsoft. In this episode of Scaling Culture, Ron and Kevin discuss Kevin's book, Culture Renovation, 18 Leadership Actions to Build an Unshakable Company, Practical and Tactical Guidelines for Companies to Plan a Culture Change, and how to build and maintain a culture of tomorrow, what that means, and what are some silver linings of this pandemic we're in on organizational cultures globally. Welcome to another episode of the Scaling Culture Podcast. I'm your host, Ron Lovett. And today, I'm extremely excited to have Kevin Oakes with us, calling in from uh, Seattle. Kevin, welcome. Thanks, Ron. Good to be here. Yeah, yeah, I was excited. Uh, I heard your name a lot through Vern Harnish. Uh, He speaks very highly of you and your work. And of course, he's been raving about your new book, The Culture Renovation. And so I was really excited to talk about that with you today. Well, I'm excited to talk about it as well. It's been a labor of love over the last year, and it's uh, it's really rewarding to see the book finally published. Yeah. So, so you know, uh, why did you decide to write this one? What what was the uh, what drove you to write Culture Renovation? Then then let's talk about the title. Yeah, the book is really uh, a combination of work from my research team, and and maybe it makes sense to just explain what my company does. We're an HR research company. We do more HR research than anyone on the planet. Always looking at companies, people practices with a business lens. You know, what's really moving the needle from a bottom line business perspective. And uh, about over a year ago, we did a study on culture change. Going into it, we knew that most attempts at culture change fail. In fact, our research shows that only 15%, so 1-5% actually succeed. And our goal with the study was to really hone in on that 15% and see if there were some commonalities uh, amongst those companies that had success with culture change and lo and behold, there were. And so from that, we created a a, a research study and this was a pretty broad study. We had well over 7,000 participants in the study, a lot of well-known organizations. Uh, So from that study, uh, I wrote the book and the book really takes the learnings of the study it goes much deeper into some of the case studies of companies that have had great success in changing their culture. When we were um, when we started out uh, looking at this topic, we were using the more common term culture transformation. And if you Google that, there's a, you know you'll get uh, a million hits on Google transformation uh, on culture transformation. But what we realized as we looked at these companies that were successful, none of them were transforming their culture. They're not starting from scratch and completely reinventing it. But the successful ones like a Microsoft or 3M or T-Mobile or Patagonia, what they all were doing was renovating their culture, keeping what was core to that organization, their purpose, their values, and what made them great to begin with, and really just improving and changing for the future. And so that's really what the book is all about is how do you do that? A lot of books that I've read on culture get to be, you know, very 
um, sort of ethereal, uh, you know, and are, are very, um, you know, strategic, but, uh, you know, pie in the sky a little bit. And I wanted to create a book that really brought this down to practical and tactical uh, guidelines for companies and, and leadership so that they could follow what made those other companies successful at culture change. Well, that's interesting because, you know, and we talk about this, we've got a book, uh, Scaling Culture, coming out in early spring, and, and we kind of categorize people in buckets. And it sounds like you're saying that, look, especially these mature companies, they have a culture, they certainly have one, and they probably have values and creative values, but it is a, they are renovating, they are making some shifts for the future, correct? That's correct, yeah. And I, early in the book, I, I talk a lot about Microsoft. I, I uh, always tell them they're example 1A. I think what uh, Satya uh, has done since he started there just in 2014 has been remarkable. You know, the, the culture change that they've enacted, it, it's a little bit night and day, and they've done so many things right in uh, changing their culture for the future. And you can see it in the financial results. You know, he was able to, you know, turn that company into the largest market cap uh, in the world. I think right now it's number two behind Apple. Uh, you know, and it's been a uh, it's been a fun company to work with and to follow. So, so I know you've got 18 metrics, but let's stay on like this, this, those who want to renovate. And so you said that there were some key commonalities from those who were successful and those who failed. Let's let's talk about some of those. Yeah, sure. Um, you know, we we separated these 18 steps into three phases, keeping the renovation theme. And so the phases are plan, build, and maintain. And the, the plan phase is a, is a pretty important one. Uh, we start out by saying that organizations really need to develop and deploy a comprehensive listening strategy. Uh, I've often said that one of the worst things an, ex an, an executive team can do is lock themselves in a conference room and decide for themselves what the culture is today in a large company, because they'll, they'll get it wrong. And so the successful companies spent a lot of time really understanding the employee sentiment at the lowest levels in the organization to uh, hone in on what are the issues that they're dealing with today, what makes the culture great, what, what needs to be improved before they set out to change anything. And sorry, Kevin, are those, you just, you, it sounds like you're going down a list of questions. Are those key questions? What is the culture today? You know, how do we improve? Is there key questions that we should be asking those folks that, that will define what the culture is? Yeah, but it's not a one and done thing, Ron. You really have to ask those questions over a period of time and on a frequent basis. Uh, we, we see a lot of companies uh, spend money on an, uh, annual employee, employee engagement surveys, for instance. Uh, those are not a great barometer of what the culture is today. It's one data point, but it's a, a point in time. And so what some of the successful companies are doing is sending out pulse surveys on a weekly or even on a daily basis. Amazon is an example of doing it on a daily basis to ask one question a day and really understand what the sentiment is of the workforce. There's also some great technology though today that's helping. So natural language processing is a technology that allows you and I to freeform comment whatever we want to say. And the system can then through artificial intelligence break it down into themes across the company. And when you're running a, an organization that has tens of thousands or even hundreds of thousands of, of employees, uh, it's very impractical to read all those comments. So the, it, the technology is helping with that employee sentiment today. And is there, is there a few key questions that can help you gauge that you would suggest that, that organizations are specifically asking? 
Yeah, I think a lot of companies will ask questions around inclusiveness. You know, that's a, a key area today. They want to understand how inclusive is our culture. They want to understand our people freely sharing knowledge inside the organization. They also want to understand, is this a psychologically safe culture? Do I have the ability to speak my mind without fear of punishment? Do we as a, a culture have the ability to make a mistake without fear of retribution? And that's always a component of, um, of innovative cultures, right? A culture where you can make mistakes and learn from those mistakes. Uh, and then move on. And so those, those are some areas of questions that companies will hone in on when they're trying to figure out what aspects of our culture do we need to tweak going forward. And so I'm just trying to, you know, walk this through. So if, if we had three core values, we have innovation, you know, teamwork and uh, honesty. So I'm, we're asking questions, is your suggestion to ask questions around each of those values, and maybe one, the fourth is inclusivity. And so we're asking questions to gauge the temperature, correct? Yeah, correct. And, and then saying, look, we're hitting this, but, but, maybe, but, but maybe does the book talk about maybe these four aren't the values that we need for the future? And is there a process to say, okay, fine, that that's what the company that, that we were, but it's time to renovate. What do we need for the future? How do, you, how do yeah. companies figure that out? Well, I talk a lot about purpose and values in the book. And so the first place to start is with a purpose. And organizations um, that are high performing organizations generally have a pretty well defined purpose. And that purpose helps them with decisions, you know, both small and large going forward. And then to support that purpose, they have values, which is what you're just talking about, Ron. Uh, for each company, those values can be a little different. You know, I think depending on your industry, the type of company you are, um, you know, there are certain things that you want to uh, stress to the workforce. For example, if I'm in manufacturing or if I'm in healthcare, then maybe safety is a very important value. Whereas in high tech, you know, that's probably not one of the most important values. It'd be more around innovation, uh, like you said. I think um, as companies have gone through this pandemic, though, the, uh, the one thing that has really risen to the top is our ability to be agile. You know, how, how um, receptive of change are we as a culture? We've always found that high performing organizations are much more inclined to have a culture that uh, accept, not only accepts change, but kind of relishes it. You know, they look at change as an opportunity uh, and they induce change on a regular basis. They try to shake things up versus companies that are very staid or slow and, you know, sort of living in the past. Those are the companies that the employee base really resists change. And I think that came out in the pandemic, you know, the companies that have gotten through this better are the ones that, you know, really uh, are fine with change and look at it as, as uh, you know, something that's normal. It's interesting. And I think I had a discussion with someone else on, a, on our podcast about this, but in my private security industry, change was one of the biggest energy time suckers for me is trying to get someone on board with change. And so when I sold that business in 2017, I ensured that our values were renovated up to a level that included change directly in the value system, mm -hmm. because that allowed us to, you know, screen for curiosity and for change and different attributes, which we thought aligned with change and really um, understand if someone, um, you know, if they led change, could follow change, if they, if they enjoyed change, these were key things even before the, the, the hiring process or during the hiring process we would look at. Is that suggested once you, you know, so, so I guess once you say, okay, we've got these values and it sounds like, and correct me if I'm wrong, Kevin, but you'll look at some of these values and say, hey, there's some that we want to continue 
to move forward with. Just like when you renovate a home, you might say, look, we're going to keep the bathroom, but we're going to renovate the kitchen because we, it doesn't provide what we need for our future children. Um, you know, so once you've decided to do that, you said, here's three, we're going to keep, um, and we're going to add these three for the, the, the business we want to be in the future. What do we do next? How do you, how do you implement that? Your next phase, I guess, is plan. And by the way, if I missed something in the first phase, please let me know. No, no, that plan is the first phase, but you're exactly right, right. Ron. Uh, you know, that is exactly what uh, the successful companies we profiled have done. They looked at values that made sense to keep, you know, that were core to who they are. Uh, but there were values that they morphed, you know, for, for the future. And, and some even added, you know, values. Uh, some tweaked their purpose statement in order to make sure that they signal to the workforce, look, the future is a little different. You know, the success that we had in the past isn't going to always be there for us in the future. And so we need to evolve as our industry evolves. And I have several cautionary tales in the book. Uh, you know, the, an easy one is Blockbuster versus Netflix, you know, and talking about, you know, how, how quickly uh, Blockbuster, uh, you know, went down primarily because they weren't receptive to change or fast enough uh, to change. And they dismissed Netflix as a serious competitor going forward. At one point, they could have bought Netflix for $50 million. Oops. Reed Hastings, you know, basically begged them to do that. And they laughed him out of the room. There are other, um, there are other examples too, though. You know, HP is another one that I talk about in the book, uh, where if you have very frequent leadership changes um, that don't necessarily pr are propelling the company forward, that's another impediment to really evolving as an organization. And so, the, you know, I, I think it's important to look at those examples as well as the successful ones uh, to see what really works in order to, uh, you know, change for the future. And yeah, because the next thing you're doing, I guess, next phase is building, right? And so building sounds like a combination of let's build this culture of diversity and inclusion because we didn't have it yesterday, but it's important for the future. But let's keep honesty and integrity because that's a foundational thing and that, that's important to us. And so how do you build around keeping a peace and moving um, and, and, and embracing new values? So one important step we talk about is identifying the influencers and energizers in the workforce. Uh, even though successful culture change is almost always leader led at the top, it's really hard to do this if the CEO and the executive team isn't on board with you know, trying to change the culture. It's almost impossible to do it that right. way. Right, outsourcing to an HR firm and say, here's what we want, go ahead and yeah, right. have at it is a fail. Yeah. But identifying those influencers and energizers in the workforce will help you create a co-creation mentality if you think about it, Ron, in any company you, you've ever had or, or you've witnessed, there are certain people where all the energy seems to flow through. The workflow goes through them. They're the ones giving advice, answering questions. It's not always obvious who those people are to senior management. Uh, in fact, sometimes those people are very buried in the hierarchy or they're introverts. They're not extroverts, uh, you know, overall. And so we, um, we're big proponents of a science called organizational network analysis, which analyzes that workflow and identifies who are those real influencers inside the company. Those are the people you want on board as your culture ambassadors, you know, the people that can uh, take this message, message forward and help with a culture change overall. So that's one important component. And equally, it's important to uh, remove the, uh, the blockers inside the organization. I have one step in the build phase that is, is called ferret out the skeptics and the non-believers early. 
And I talk about how some companies uh, did that even at the very highest levels, uh, because if somebody's in a very uh, important role inside the organization, but doesn't believe in what you're trying to do from a culture change perspective, usually it's because their power might be usurped or uh, you know, they feel like it's uh, detrimental to them individually, they can cause real havoc. So it's important to you know, use that same science to understand who those people are. And what about on the communication front? So let's just say I'm an employee, Kevin, at Microsoft, and, and let's go back to this example. You know, my values align with Microsoft of the past, but not, I don't align with diversity and inclusion. I don't, don't, it's not important to me. How do we communicate, you know, get people to embrace the new values of the future? Do you talk about that process? Yeah, it's funny you use that example too, because inside Microsoft, they talk about uh, employees as you know being from the old days versus the growth mindset, which Satya has rallied the company around in the Satya days. And that communication uh, is something that leadership certainly sets out, but continues to trumpet on a regular basis. Growth mindset, which is the ability or the, the philosophy that you can grow and develop and that uh, skills are not uh, totally innate and uh, can't be developed. And the idea that it's not knowledge is power, it's knowledge sharing is power and having a culture of learn it alls versus know it alls. That's th that, those are the uh, messages that Microsoft uh, continues to push forward. And they did it through posters and conference rooms, for example. They had a poster that says, is this going to be a fixed mindset meeting or a growth mindset meeting? And then examples of uh, what each is underneath. I think all those are, are important to paint a vision for the future. And that's something I talk about in the build phase. And I also give examples of where um, you, you see this all the time with new CEOs where they come in and they very quickly blame uh, you know, their predecessor and they admonish what was done in the past. Well, if you do that, you're really insulting a lot of employees who you know, put a lot of hard work into you know, creating the company that they were today. And there's several examples of where organizations have focused too much on the mistakes of the past and didn't paint a vision for the future failed in their efforts. And I, I, I see it in so many uh, instances in, the, in uh, the successful case studies where they kept the company focused on the future. This is what we want to be going forward. And so those people that you know, are rooted in the past that don't believe in it, it's important to get them to believe or to move them out of the way, Ron. Yeah, interesting. And so, so, you know, this is a, you're saying, look, for 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 anchored in skeptics, move them out of the way for sure, right? This, is, you know, maybe the, these conversations aren't working, but what else can go wrong, or what did the research show goes wrong? Um, you know, what are some key stuck points? Because you know, and, and I, this is still a form of renovation, um, but you know, in some cases, when someone's even creating culture, they haven't even set the values. We see a lot of early stage entrepreneurs will, they'll finally create values and you'll be an employee of mine. I'll say, look, Kevin, or, you know, our values are this, this, this. And, and of course, maybe there was competing cultures before or, or uh, you know, the sales team had their own culture and finance had their own. And so, you know, as the CEO and founder, I, I developed these new values and we go to execute them and, and they become divisive, you know, like it's like politics in some cases or, or religion, you know, some people say, look, I'm just not on board with that. And, We've seen a lot of entrepreneurs, founders, CEOs retract. They said, geez, you know, Kevin's been here for 10 years and does a decent job. 
he is not on board with this. I'm, I'm going to throw this project out. You know, what are you seeing on the renovation stage? What is that major point of like, you know, point of no return? You either have the courage to keep going or there's major stuck points, which we need to work through. What did you see in your research? Years ago, um, a professor at Stanford, Bob Sutton, wrote a book called The No A-Hole Rule. And it was the concept of you can't tolerate uh, brilliant a-holes in your company uh, because it's going to be detrimental overall to the culture. And the, the, top, the top cultures get that. They understand that uh, no matter how much somebody is successful, the ends doesn't justify the means. Uh, the leadership team has to walk the talk. You can't just put words in a PowerPoint and then not, not uh, follow those because the employee base will do what you do, uh, not what you say. And so you've got to, you've got to uh, be consistent with the actions that you have inside the organization. Um, I, uh, you know, as I look at those successful companies, um, you know, it's important that they train on those desired behaviors. And we talk about that uh, in the book quite a bit. There's a, a great company called F5 Networks and uh, had a great conversation with their CEO uh, who said, you know, I wasn't using the word renovation, but it's exactly what I was trying to do. I was trying to uh, make sure I kept people focused on the future and that I was training my leadership team to walk the talk and they were teaching their leaders on down to continue to uh, showcase the desired behaviors overall. So all of that are important steps, Ron, but I, I think when we talk about you know, what can go wrong in, mm -hmm. in this process, uh, that's where we get into the maintain phase. This is okay. a phase that um, often uh, it gets ignored. You know, there can be a lot of hoopla around culture change and there can be progress made, but if you don't keep it up, it's very easy to kind of revert back to the way things used to be. And so the maintain phase is, a, you know, a number of different talent activities that organizations can take in order to maintain that great culture change that, uh, that you planned and build. And what, what are those key activities that, that the ones so that started, really drove yeah, success? Yeah. Yeah, I start with onboarding. Um, you know, it's very interesting uh, how companies have changed their philosophy around onboarding. It used to be, you know, an hour or two and you'd get your badge or you get your laptop and it was, you know, here's where the bathrooms are kind of activity. Uh, today, it's a much longer process and companies are recognizing that the most important thing they can do for a new employee is get them connected to people who can help them inside the organization, subject matter experts, uh, just really setting up your, your internal network appropriately so that you have a support system and that you're contributing to that support system. And so the successful companies have done that and, and made sure that they weaved in what was great about their culture, what was unique about their culture right from the start. And from there, we, we, we moved on to numerous, I won't go through all the talent activities, but one that I really like is changing the performance management practices. Uh, yeah. We've seen in, in several companies that just changing how we're going to measure performance, what we're going to reward and condone versus what we're going to penalize, that can really uh, continue to reinforce the culture that you've, you've set out. There are a lot of companies that had a forced distribution or forced ranking system in their organization around performance, for instance. And what that means is every department sort of ranks uh, in order the value of individuals in that group or division. You don't want to be last in that list because those, those are typically the employees in those systems that were weeded out of the organization. Well, the dynamic that sets up is if you and I are coworkers, my main goal is to beat you, Ron, and your main goal is to beat me. 
Whereas, you know, you look at this from a corporate perspective, we should be partnering together to beat the competition, not each other. And so a lot of companies have recognized the, the detriment of that and have put in new performance management practices that reinforce their culture, showcase good managerial employee uh, interactions uh, and keep employees uh, in a cooperative mode and focused on the future. So there, there are a few other uh, aspects of that maintain phase, but that gives you some example of the talent activities. Yeah, I was, I was curious when you were talking through that, because it's still got to be one of these biggest challenges. Maybe this goes back to plan, uh, Kevin, is, is, is again, adding what we believe will um, drive behaviors for success for our future company, not the one today or yesterday. And so are, through your study, is there anything that these companies have added that whether it's resiliency, performance into their values, diversity, inclusion into their values, what are you seeing What are some commonalities that they've renovated to these things, which seem to be driving, you know, you said that Microsoft certainly had a huge turnaround. Was there commonalities with any of the companies that added this one, you know, uh, piece of language or statement into their values and had people align to that, which, which allowed them to be successful or a few? Yeah. I don't think there's a magic, I'm not going to say a word that's going to be a magic bullet for all companies, but I or do think that, or... that concept of change is a big one, but certainly in today's day and age, diversity, uh, equity, and inclusion are things that most companies are trying to improve and doubling down on. Uh, we've seen many organizations recognize that they need to ramp up the, the diverse hiring, the diverse talent pipelines that they have coming into the organization. The more diverse they are as an organization, typically the more innovative you are as a company, you make better decisions um, and you perform better. And then inclusion is such an important concept there too. You know, just having a, an inclusive um, environment that uh, all employees can feel that their, you know, their work matters, that their voice is heard. Those are certainly things that today companies are, uh, I think, getting a lot more serious about. Yeah, we had a guest on uh, from the Czech Republic the other day, and they had a statement, and it really hit home. And her statement was, diversity does not equal inclusion. That's right. Yeah, it's, yeah it's, you, can, you can have a diverse environment, but, uh, you know, it can be a very exclusive environment. So that, right. that's why, you know, so many organizations have, have recognized that and focused more on that inclusion aspect. So, so during this process, and let's go up 10,000 feet, if there's a few things to get right, you know, what are the key things if, if I'm heading down this renovation stage and Ron, look, cause there's gotta be, you have 18 steps, but there's gotta be a lot of things and a lot of activities in there. There's a big project. What are just the things that you need to get right? One is setting out uh, the measures that you're going to use to measure your progress right up front. Uh, we found that two thirds of companies that were successful, they did that right up front, maybe more startling. 90% of companies that were unsuccessful did not do that. And those measures can, uh, there can be a wide range of things that you're measuring. One that I really like is taking the whole concept of um, NPS, you know, for customers and then using it for employees. Would employees um, have a high net promoter score uh, inside the organization and recommend your organization as a good place to work? That's always a good barometer. Uh, there are other things that you can measure over time just around engagement or around financial performance to showcase that your culture is improving. And we're seeing that um, boards of directors uh, are re requesting this more and more. Uh, a lot of boards, uh, particularly of public companies, 
have gotten a lot more serious about measuring culture. They want to make sure that they're not sitting on a Boeing 737 MAX issue, you know, or a Wells Fargo sales issue. Uh, and they want to understand what is the culture incenting and condoning, uh, you know, rewarding, et cetera. And it's funny, um, just just quick side note on that. Yeah. I'm also seeing that I'm on the board of a tech company who just had a significant investment and their investors did the same thing. They part of their due diligence was a culture due diligence. And so it seems to be board and, and uh, you know, private equity firms and and funds are starting to do the same thing because they know that are, are, are we, it seems to be a, um, a great way to check on the the temperature of of the people we're investing in and the environment we're investing in, which I don't think people looked at that before as much. Not as much. And I love that PE firms and even some VCs are doing that today. If you think about the typical board meeting, the insight into culture was usually filtered 90% through the eyes of the CEO. Whatever the CEO was telling the board was basically what they believed the culture was. And so they're all looking for some independent measures of that culture. And so I think that that's a very healthy uh, development overall. The other thing that's um, changing a little bit, Ron, is that boards are recognizing, particularly in the pandemic, they, they didn't have a lot of human capital expertise sitting around the boardroom. Uh, they probably over-architected on financial acumen, uh, but now I'm seeing more and more boards trying to add ex-CHROs or even current CHROs and others who have that human capital expertise to the to the board uh, to the board table. The um, the last thing I'll mention here that I think is a critical thing, and it, I, I talk a lot about it in the book, is the partnership between HR and leadership. Uh, I can tell right away a company where HR does not report into this to the CEO. Uh, that's a company that probably doesn't value uh, their people as much as they should. And we've seen in many of the successful organizations that the head of HR is not only reporting to the CEO, but part of that inner you know, three or four person circle. And the CEO is looking at that uh, HR department as a key partner that's really overseeing the most important part of most companies, which is the workforce, right? And it's, so it's kind of silly that, you know, we've even set up companies to not have that structure. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, people continue to say our biggest challenge is people. Like it, it's, it's in the top three every time, every time, you know, uh, that, that's really interesting. And, and what do you think of this concept? Because we, we talk about this in, in our book and this concept of HR has changed to who you are, Kevin, at work to who you are as a person. What are your thoughts on that? And you talk about that in the book. Yeah, that's, that's been even escalated during the pandemic. And one of the yes. silver linings from the pandemic and remote work is that we're hearing from coworkers I now have a window into the lives of my, not only my coworkers, but also leadership in the company. I mean, and every day we're, you know, jetted into their living room or their kitchen or what have you. We see their kids, their pets. We understand if they have elder care responsibilities or child care responsibilities. And we're now seeing the whole person versus just that work persona. Uh, I think you're going to see much more of that appreciation going forward after the, you know, hopefully after the pandemic is uh, over someday. And, uh, you know, that, that has been uh, something workers have said about the pandemic where we've seen a positive impact to the culture. They've also seen more empathy from leadership during this time and flexibility from leadership. And I think that's been another silver lining. Yeah, it was another um, uh, quote I heard the other day. I think from this, it was from uh, the same uh, podcast guest who said, you know, I think it was vulnerability and empathy equals bravery. And that, that's, that seems to be a new trend versus, you know, bravery before was I'm tough and, 
and command and control and no BS, but that that's changed. That has changed. And, uh, it, you know, Brene Brown and others talk a lot about that, that vulnerability is a strength in top leaders. And if you can show you're vulnerable, uh, you have a lot more strength than those who don't. Yeah. Is there anything else that are key points in your book or anything else that we haven't talked today, talked about today that you think are important to our listeners? I, I think during the pandemic, most organizations' cultures have changed, like it or not. And maybe it's not always uh, incredibly visible uh, in how they've changed. And so it's important for companies to recognize the, you know, the, the fact that, yeah, we've probably incurred some change. Uh, it hasn't been intentional. So let's get intentional about the culture we want to have going forward. And let's be proactive uh, to make those, you know, to make sure we have the culture we want for the future. And so my advice to organizations is to really uh, start with that listening, really understand, you know, where the culture is today, what employee sentiment is today, where are some of the issues, what are some of the strengths, so you can make better decisions around what it should be going forward. It's interesting. I, w- I would add to that too that the pandemic has also th- those cultures that that weren't great. You know, I don't know how I want to label them, but it's exposed them because of this back and forth, come back to work, go home, come back to work. It seems to be obvious that those who had challenging cultures that are like, I don't know what's going on here. People don't want to come home. They they'll take home the the government support and sit on their butts at home. If you didn't have a good culture, it was, it, was, it was exposed now because people didn't want to come back to work. It was almost an excuse to say, finally, I don't have to work with Kevin anymore. I'm just going to go either find a new job or go on an unemployment assistance. Um, they are having a hard time. It's time, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a time of reckoning for them to say, it's time to renovate. Yeah, it's also exposed some leaders as well. I yes. had one head of HR tell me, I don't need to do any leadership assessments anymore. The pandemic has showed me everything I need to know about the leaders in my organization. I, Very clear who were the good ones and stepped up and who were the ones that did not. And uh, so, it, you know, it goes along with your comment on culture, Ron. Yeah. Well, look, Kevin, it was great to have you today. Where can people uh, find your book? How do we find you online and your book? Yeah, probably the, you know, the regular sources uh, like Amazon or Barnes & Noble. But uh, we have a website set up for the book at culturerenovation.com. And at that website, you'll not only uh, be able to read a little bit more about the book, be able to order the book there. But we've also put some tools uh, such as assessments and a culture dashboard as well as case studies, additional case studies uh, for people to go out and take a look at. I also recognize that there are things companies are doing to change their culture that aren't in the book. We know that because we couldn't fit them all in the book. And so we're trying to capture some of those stories too. So if people have uh, ideas on what really worked inside their organization, you can share that out on that website. Oh, that's great. And so when you said checklist, is, there, is it kind of like, where am I today? Check, check, check. Uh, kind of look in the mirror of, of do we need renovations and if so, where? Yeah, there is a, um, a free assessment that you can take right out, right out of the gate on that site, but then a more involved assessment within an organization. Great. Kevin Oaks, it's been great to have you. Very insightful. Uh, lots of great content. Thank you for your time. And uh, yeah, thanks for stopping in. Thanks for your support of this whole topic, Ron. I look forward to talking to you more about it. Absolutely. For more information about Kevin Oaks, please connect with him on LinkedIn or go to culturerenovation.com. 
for more information about the Scaling Culture podcast or our upcoming book or masterclass, Scaling Culture, go to ConnellyOwens.com. And if you're enjoying the Scaling Culture podcast, please subscribe and share. We'll be back next week with another incredible guest.